Thanks for having me. And welcome to the UAE. I know you're kind of just arrived a bit jet lagged -lagged, but we'll be all right (laughs) welcome and joining you alongside and partnering you with the training that's going to be delivered from tomorrow and that's elizabeth fajardo who's director of monarch learning and development Uh, that's an idrn's local partner that's who you are and you're hosting the training here in dubai pleasure to be here how did this come about elizabeth oh we are both part of humanitarian works okay professionally like humanitarian aids and support and assistance so that's how we got to know each other what's going to happen then it's happening at the gloria hotel tomorrow uh what's the aims and what how's it going to how's it going to roll out david uh, so we're running two trainings, IDRN 1100 and IDRN 1300. Uh, IDRN 1100 is community-based disaster preparedness, and the 1300 is community-based disaster response. So basically we teach people how to prepare themselves, their families for disaster, how to survive a disaster, and then we teach them how to respond. Um, a lot of people show up just wanting to learn how to be disaster responders, um, but if you live in an area that is prone to disasters, if you yourself are a casualty of the disaster, if you're not prepared, you're not going to be able to help anybody else. And so we feel that as very important. Why here in the UAE? Um, primarily because the UAE is, is such a central hub. Um, a vast majority of the people in UAE are, are not from the UAE. They're from somewhere else. So by training in the UAE, we, we hope that they will take that training and, and bring it back to their, their home nations. The, the training is designed to be... Um, to be a training of trainers so after we finish all the initial training we'll be training everyone to be a trainer with the hopes that they will uh, train others and bring it back in their communities additionally as was mentioned before on the show you know the UAE does focus on assisting other nations and so we want to equip people to be able to help others tell us a little bit about your background because I mean you've traveled all over the world and Mm -hmm. it's not in happy circumstances (laughs) but nevertheless you're a professional dealing with human beings in crisis so give us an example of some of those situations so my background is um, and if if, if we're just being frank here I I was uh, in the military I was uh, an airborne uh, infantryman a rifle platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne I, I left the military and I had a, a skill set that was very unique. It's not like I was uh, in the Navy or the Air Force and was working in telecommunications. I was an infantryman. Um, so I understood operations and I understood working in harsh environments. So I tried to figure out how I could tailor that to help people. And um, a mentor in my life said, why don't you do disaster response? I mean, it's, it's very similar. You're doing operations in harsh environments, only you're, you're doing different types of operations. Uh, So I I left uh, the Army, uh, went to Geneva, studied with the UN, and kind of tried to retool myself towards that um, and started working with the organization I'm currently working with and have been doing that ever since. And the work that you do, I mean, you're running these training sessions, but coming out of, you know, experience. So we were talking about disaster and how to define a natural disaster. And I guess you look at the environmental impact on on communities. So, you know, flood, mm-hmm. earthquake, sure. uh, avalanche, mm-hmm. um, uh, fires, uh, they're natural disasters. Sure. How else do you define that? Well, we did the, the everyone kind of has a different definition of what a disaster is, um, but they're all very similar. Um, I believe that the, the Red Cross definition of a disaster is a, a sudden event that causes um, economic losses, um, property losses, environmental losses, human losses mm-hmm. that exceed the, capa- the capability and capacity for that community or 
society to respond in a way to prevent those losses. So any event where capacity is overwhelmed and the local community cannot cope can be a disaster. Elizabeth, uh, you're working in learning and development at Monarch, but where does your sense of humanity, the humanitarian work across the globe come in? Where did your interests rise? I used to work in aviation industry like for the longest time of my career. So I have been exposed to different kinds of emergencies, have seen, you know, different cases where, yeah, calamities, disasters are happening because as we travel around the globe, you know, you will be exposed to all these kind of things. So, yeah. And have you gone through training yourself? Well, yes. Um, I used to work with uh, Emirates Airlines earlier and um, I'm in the group medical training where we do, you know, emergencies and first aid and, you know, some kind of things. And as I said, we are part and member of the professional humanitarian assistance and protection. Mm. Uh, originally from the Philippines. That's right. So and they've had their fair share of some terrible things happening, um, you know, when it comes to natural disasters. What, how, do you, how does it feel when you're away from home country and you see devastation and what's happening to your countrymen and to your country? Well, I think there's really no amount of word to describe, you know, how you feel. It's just like full and mixed of emotion because you wanted so much to help, but you are limited to what you can do, but just to, you know, to, to pray. I'm not discounting the power of prayer, but if there is something that you can do to prepare, then why not? So that's why it came also to, to my mind that, you know, preparedness is better than response because sometimes you are able to, you know, I'm available, but you're not equipped. So at the end, there's nothing much that you can do. You know, th that sense that you're talking about is, is very, very powerful. And as David mentioned before, uh, there are individuals living in the UAE primarily made up of expats and people from varying countries that have gone through, you know, their family members have gone through these calamities and mm -hmm. it has affected them very negatively. Uh, there is this sense of learned helplessness almost, you know, there is this sense of uh, there's what can I do? Is there nothing I can do to help? Mm -hmm. And the, the greater the strategies are, the more structured the framework for mm -hmm. helping and preparing are, uh, then the the more we can reduce this sensation of learned helplessness. Because yeah. what we want, we don't want at the end of the day, is for people to get desensitized to what Absolutely. they're viewing. Right. right, David? Absolutely. I mean, you're giving me goosebumps right now because one of the mm -hmm. things we really focus on is community-based. I'm sorry, community-based disaster risk management. Um, which is, is going into communities and kind of reversing that learned helplessness. I mean, if, if you look at the Philippines, which is ranked number three in the world as far as risk to natural disasters, the only countries above it are uh, Tonga and Vanuatu, which are tiny islands in the Pacific. Um, I mean, the Philippines is the supermarket for natural disasters. So many people are at risk there. Um, mm -hmm. But what people don't realize is that the Philippines has always been at risk of natural disasters and people have been inhabiting the Philippines for a very long time and they have coping mechanisms um, mm -hmm. you know and they've always had those coping mechanisms but they've been taught that their role during a natural disaster is to sit wait and let the professionals do the work right. so a disaster is occurring around them in their communities and they're just sitting and waiting for the government 
to show up and help. But the fact of the matter is, is that the international community, the government, the military, they aren't nearly agile enough to respond during those first few hours. Those first few hours are known as the golden hours. That's where if you do intervene, you can save the most lives. After those first few hours pass, mortality and morbidity rates start skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. um, but the only group that's agile enough to do anything is the community itself. So you really need to focus on analyzing what capacities and capabilities exist within those communities, capitalize on those capacities, and tailor them to, to deal with the vulnerabilities that exist in, in those communities. That's what we really focus on, is empowering communities to help themselves. Talking to David Bopp and Elizabeth Fajardo as they are running a training session starting tomorrow at the Gloria Hotel. We posted all the details up on our website, but Disaster, disaster Risk Reduction, DRR, and uh, David's an IDRN trainer, which stands for International disaster response network thank you so much and you're running two training sessions over a few days uh, preparedness and response when in a natural disaster now peter's texting to say um is there a recognized qualification to this course um you know who is it run by can anyone attend and what can it be used for okay uh so it's the IDRN is a decentralized network. It's a conglomeration of a variety of organizations and entities across 35 countries. Nobody runs it, um, but that that makes us effective in the sense that that there's th that that bureaucracy doesn't exist. We primarily um, work together by sharing information and, and filling gaps. So when we respond to a disaster like Nepal, we figure out which organizations are interested in going and we try to analyze what needs exist and then fit those organizations into those needs, um, try to fill the gaps that we're seeing. So it's, it's basically kind of uh, a disaster response alliance. It's, it's almost like taking a variety of puzzle pieces. We all have different strengths. Each organization has a different focus and putting that puzzle together to create a more comprehensive response. So with regards to who can join, anyone can join. Um, as far as um, accreditation, was that the question? Or, or Yeah, you know, is, there a qualifica is it a recognized qualification? Okay. So because each government has different recognized qualifications, um, within the, the, the global um, <laughs> domain, there's, there's not really a recognized qualification. Um, the IDRN is recognized internationally by a variety of organizations. Um, when you go through the IDRN training, you receive an IDRN badge, which has your name, your, your picture, and, and identifies you as having gone through the training. And that provides some credibility, um, but it also provides accountability. So if, if you go to Nepal and you start doing stupid things, the, the network can kind of find you and try to <laughs> correct those, those problems. Um, so it, it provides access, it provides credibility, but there's no formal um, accreditation just because that's, that's very difficult to do internationally. And to give people more of an idea of where you're coming from, it's Sustainable Communities Worldwide, it's an NGO based in Colorado, but mm -hmm. you've led relief efforts on the ground, coordinating operations, conducting assessments, establishing supply chains on the ground in places like Indonesia, Lebanon, uh, Philippines, Haiti. Um, you've also been uh, part of an international network, as you've outlined. Um, you've also created a community-based disaster, disaster risk management curriculum covering over 40 hours of classroom work and personally trained over 6,000 people across nearly 30 countries in this curriculum. Yes. 
Um, I, I have been in a variety of countries, I've dealt with a variety of cultures, I've responded to a variety of disasters, but as, as we kind of talked about before um, we left for a break, our, our primary focus is empowering local communities. Um, so we do whatever we can to, to empower that community to respond on their behalf. So when a disaster does occur, occur um, our role is basically supporting their efforts and helping them help themselves. David, how much of um, the culture of that local community do you need to familiarize yourself with before uh, you empower them? A lot. Um, there's so many obstacles um, culturally that, w that we come across that, that make it very difficult to impart that knowledge. Um, one of the biggest ones is this idea of fate um, that becomes very difficult to confront when we talk about preparedness. Um, people say, you know, if it's, if it's my time to go or, or something bad's going to happen, that's, that's my destiny. So getting around that is, is very difficult. Um, you obviously don't want to um, try to dismantle the culture in any way because that's, that's an asset, that's a strength that you, that you can build upon, um, but you, you want to try to maneuver around some of those obstacles. So in those cases, I mean, unless you have lived there for a very, very, very long time, it's, it's impossible to understand all the intricacies. Um, so we really depend upon our local partners to help us contextualize and tailor the training for those communities. And these local partners are uh, presumably bilingual, uh, they're aware of the cultural sort of nuances and, and the challenges that come with it and then so they're almost like the interpreters, cultural exactly. interpreters to try Precisely. and break those barriers. They, they serve as the bridge and, and we really lean upon them and we, um, you know, they control the process. Um, the locals control the process. We just kind of help assist and provide the training. And ultimately what we want to do is train local actors in this curriculum so they can train each other. And we give them full permission to adapt and contextualize the training however they see fit. And in any given situation, the huge challenges arise. Uh, we were listening to a news report from America regarding Nepal, and one of the people they interviewed was saying, uh, you, know, you know, we're not getting the aid fast enough, we're not getting the help fast enough. Uh, we've heard reports that, you know, helicopters, was a, there was an issue and delay of getting helicopters into the remote areas. And there's always going to be these stories, but... You know, if you can, across all of these uh, situations and cultures, pick and draw some of the most common challenges you face, getting in and getting the support that people need as fast as they possibly can. Well, again, it's, it's always access. And we, we talked about the agility of the international community and the government. And one of the things that really impacts their ability to assist their own people is, is access. Um, after Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines and Nepal, you have areas that are completely isolated and cut off. Um, I just returned from Nepal a few weeks ago, and that's absolutely the case. I mean, Kathmandu is absolutely inundated with assistance. And a lot of organizations kind of show up and they, they focus on the path of least resistance. Um, so they'll distribute all their aid into Kathmandu and a lot of the more isolated areas will get ignored simply because you can't access them. A lot of the areas in Nepal can only be accessed by helicopter, but renting a helicopter is incredibly expensive and, and not something that a lot of organizations can feasibly afford. I mean, if you're, if you're spending 
$5,000 on renting a helicopter to deliver a couple hundred dollars of food. That's not very responsible. Um, so again, we, we kind of go back into preparing the community to help themselves, teaching them to store food um, for these types of events, teaching them to store medical supplies, teaching them to um, identify alternate sources of water. Um, and, you know, that, that really does help reduce the impact and, and reduce the severity of, of the situation for those communities. So but they, they still do need outside assistance. So there isn't a centralized uh, sort of organization that communicates and controls these various uh, aid or institutions? Okay. Um, or distribution. So the organization that does that is called UNOCHA, the Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs. And typically they're the ones that are responsible for coordinating um, all the international organizations. Um, and the big organizations, the, the Red Cross, World Vision, Oxfam, they're all very willing to coordinate with OCHA. What, what you often have is these very, very tiny organizations showing up to these disasters and not really plugging in to the system. Um, so you see a lot of duplication of effort. You'll see five orgs in one area, and you'll see no orgs in another area. Um, mm. So th th they don't really coordinate very well. Mm. Um, and it's, it's partially lack of experience. It's partially not um, communicating mm. with OCHA. But the thing is, is because it's an international environment, it's, it's all voluntary. You can't force an organization that's, that's volunteering and going to Nepal to help people and say, you must coordinate um, with OCHA. It's just not going to happen. One of the requirements um, coming in for health teams that were coming into Nepal was that they register with the World Health Organization. Um, and a lot of the, the medical teams that were coming in didn't want to spend two hours registering, so they just said that they weren't a medical team so they could bypass that, but that, that creates bigger problems in the long run. Just gives you a, just a small insight into huge areas of challenge. Just go over what the course will include over the next few days. Okay, so the course is going to be four days long. Uh, the first day is going to be primarily focused on preparedness. We want to teach individuals and families how to prepare themselves for disasters, whether they're living here or they're expats returning home and, and being more exposed to disasters. Um, the following three days we will be training response um, basically how to respond to a disaster um, and kind of going through some of the intricacies of that and um, on that fourth day as well we we will be conducting a train the trainer session to teach everyone in the course how to be trainers of this curriculum and how are you going to teach that i mean is this just do you do any kind of role play or is it the third day is a day-long exercise, um, so we divide them into various teams, and uh, they, they do a tabletop exercise using radios, using maps, um, and we separate them and basically run through a scenario where we provide them injects, which is basically a, a piece of information, and they have to coordinate with each other and react to those situations. So, so it's, it's more or less a stress test. You know, they, we take everything that they've learned and we put them in a scenario and have them apply it and try to put them in tough situations and see how they make decisions and react. So, and then these people that you train to be trainers can go back to their countries of origin and train other people? Absolutely. Um, so we, we want this model to be as viral as possible. We want it to be decentralized. Um, so any trainer, we allow them to train whoever they want, wherever they want, um, whenever they want. 
provided that they provide us the information on who was trained, um, contact information, demographics, just so we can keep that information in our system. Um, and we will also provide anyone that has been trained through those trainers with an IDRN badge. Mm-hmm. Well, Anita's texting to say, um, I'm uh, Nepalese, and uh, this is really interesting to me, but I'm not able to attend the course this week. I'm leaving tomorrow. Is there an opportunity to take this training um, at another time? And uh, they're asking for details. So we've put up all your details on our website. So if you're looking for websites and to connect, then uh, check out Dubai Today's page on DubaiI1038.com. But opportunities to pick up the training elsewhere at another time. Yes, actually, we are working to plug some more training dates, and hopefully it will be very soon. Yeah. Okay, so just make, make, get in touch, make get the in connection, touch, yes. That's right. and, uh, and see, see what happens. We will be doing a training in Nepal a few months from now. So. Someone else is asking about what they particularly would like to do is help the children of Syria. Mm. Is this mm-hmm. something that they could do via a course like this? Absolutely. Um, so... First of all, I, I want to encourage everyone that wants to help, help. That's great. Um, one of the things I would challenge um, everyone with that, that wants to assist in Syria and Nepal is is have a specific skill. Um, you know, I get a dozen emails a day saying, hey, Dave, I want to help in Nepal. Um, how can I go there? What can I do? You know, I can help move debris. And I say, have a skill. Don't just show up. We have, we have a term um, called disaster tourism where people – buy a ticket to Nepal and they show up and they don't have any specific skill to offer that, that's applicable to the situation. And so they, they show up and they basically become a burden on the system. They're, they're eating, they're using a hotel room that could be used by someone more skilled or not necessarily a hotel room, but basically they mm-hmm. become... Just sheer volume, sheer yeah, number of people. Yeah. drawing on resources. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I mean, we, we saw this in Haiti. You know, when I was in Haiti, there was there was more white faces than, than black faces. Um, and a lot of people just showed up with no skills, wanting to help, and, and, that, and that's good. Um, but you really need to analyze how you want to help. And I would say if you don't have a skill go get one. Um, it's, it's not that hard to find a skill that, that can be very useful in a disaster. Uh, mm. Go take four months of training in the evenings to become an EMT, and then you can show up in a disaster zone and really mm. be helpful and not... And that's what emergency... Emergency well, medical technician. Yeah, um, so you could do that possibly. I don't right. know if we've got that opportunity here, mm. but yeah. maybe... Uh, there is, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. What else would be a good skill that you could take to a disaster situation? Trauma counseling is, is something that's always very helpful, and I know that there's there's courses for that. Just go get first aid training through the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, again, what you have to remember is if think about all the money that you'd spend on buying a ticket to Syria or Nepal, and think about how many tarps or how much rice you right. could buy with that money. Um, and you need to really analyze whether you going is going to be helpful or whether it would be better just to take that money you'd spend on a ticket and, and donate it to an organization that's working on the ground. So with Syria, um, yeah, if, if you have something specific that you can provide or you have a specific plan for helping the children, great, go implement that. But really ask yourself if it's useful. Um, if not, consider donating to an organization that's on the ground doing something. Dave, how has uh, technology and innovation helped this process or maybe hindered in some cases? Um, 
actually it's 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 quite amazing um the information sharing um specifically through gis platforms is is growing every day um we're seeing and gis is um i'm sorry geospatial information systems okay like uh google earth um there's a specific uh platform called Ushahidi. it was designed in nairobi uh during the elections where where people can basically send in reports saying hey our village in this location of Nepal has this many casualties. We need food. And they can plug that in on their cell phone, and it will pop up on a map. So very quickly, it's, it's, it's basically crowdsourcing disaster information. So you can get a very clear picture of what's going on very quickly by crowdsourcing that information. And that allows people to, to kind of coordinate. Yeah, and there was uh, stories coming out of the UK after the riots a few years ago and how actually technology was used to organize those riots. So it works the other way potentially too if you want to maneuver people to, you know, via Twitter, via Absolutely. social media yep. to you know move people to certain yep. areas and also to conflict or stir uh, scenarios with, yep. with, with an audience that way. Yep. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's mobilizing people, whether for positive or, or negative reasons. And, you know, to readdress the previous question of how can I help in Nepal, you can do that remotely because of technology, because of that innovation. You can do so remotely by just gathering information and packaging it and making that available to people. That's very helpful. Um, you know, we have people that are creating reports, basically gathering news information and various reports from Yushahidi and other sources and compiling that into reports that we then send to the organizations on the ground. So someone remotely is doing that, but that has such a huge operational impact for those organizations on the ground. Yeah, in situations where um, there is this kind of this level of trauma um, that occurs, a lot of times individual uh, decision making shuts down, individual sort of planning and thought process shuts down, mm. and there's there's lots of conformity or modeling of behavior of others. So people kind of go along with the group think uh, mentality. Mm -hmm. David, does that happen in natural disasters? And, and what can, you know, what's the impact of that? Absolutely. Um, so we, we have something called the theory of 10-80-10, that when a natural disaster occurs, 10% of the population is going to react in a rational manner. 80% of the population is just going to freeze and react in shock, um, not do anything to preserve their own lives or help others. And then the last 10% are actually going to react in a way that is harmful to themselves or harmful to other people. Um, so, I mean, the, the, primary, the primary way of, of getting around that is just training people, um, helping them manage expectations, helping them th think through specific scenarios and, and create plans. And we try to do that through the training. Is, is that kind of what you yeah, were asking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that 80%, I yeah. guess, that kind of sits and waits for other people. And they, they watch to, what yeah. other people do. And if, if everyone else has been taught to be a passive actor during a disaster and wait for help to come, they'll do the same thing. So trying to break through that. I have a actual personal experience of that in a small way, actually. Um, so back in, well, I can't remember the year now, but when there was a terrorist attack on London, I was actually on Oxford Street when um, it happened, when the uh, bus was targeted and the metro station and um, the underground stations were targeted. And um, 
the natural inclination I was just going into an underground station on Oxford Street and of course everybody else was as well and I just suddenly thought no I don't want to be going underground with everybody else mm-hmm. and I turned around and felt like I was the only one doing it and came up and out of the underground station yep. and just walked very quietly calmly and quickly through back streets to get out of that central area as quickly as I possibly could but I that came from nowhere that was yep. just an instinct Yep, and you really mm. question yourself when you're doing something that no one else is doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But you were doing the right thing. Yeah. So. so, David, can I ask you what, I mean, you know, I know there's different circumstances, different individuals, different cultures, different people, but generally, as human beings, what's the sort of biggest mistakes do you see when it comes to either the way people are within a disaster situation or the way people respond in a disaster situation? Um I'll talk about response just because I'm, I'm pretty focused on that. Uh, the biggest mistake I see is, is people um, not coming prepared. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll see a medical team and they're, they're responding because they recognize that there's a need, that the hospitals are overwhelmed, that there's not enough doctors, that there's not enough medications. Um, and so they'll respond, but they won't, they won't bring shelter for themselves. They won't bring water purification tablets. They won't bring food for themselves. They won't bring adequate clothing. They might not even bring medications. They'll say, oh, we'll just buy stuff from the pharmacy there. And it's like, do you, do you understand what you're responding to? The, the, the situation is so dire that you're not going to have access to those things. So they actually become victims. They become part of the problem, not part of the solution. And they actually need assistance from other organizations. So that's one thing. The other thing is just um, people following the path of least resistance. We saw this a lot in Kathmandu. Um, you know, I, I did say that Kathmandu was inundated, but it was strange. Um, Bhaktapur, which is one of the UNESCO heritage sites, um, very close to the airport, um, very much in the public eye, um, the periphery, the places that were closest to the road, received plenty of assistance. But if you walked just a few blocks in, um, there was devastation and needs weren't being met simply because, you know, people would provide food off the back of trucks and things like that, but they weren't really making the effort to get to some of the more isolated areas. Um, so if you looked at a, a map of the areas of Kathmandu that were receiving a lot of assistance, the areas that were close to uh, main routes or, or roads were getting plenty of assistance, but those those more isolated areas that you'd have to work harder to get to were not. So mainly focusing on where the gaps exist and really making the effort to fill the gaps and meet needs that are not already being met. And is it like rather, I guess, what we've talked about before when we talk about um, mental health issues and psychology and and life in that, you know, when you have a loss of a, a loved one and there's a grieving process you go with, is it similar within a disaster situation that there is a kind of process that human beings go through? And if that is the case all the attention and quite rightly is at the beginning the aftermath just after this has happened but what about six months later a year later two years later five years later do do places get forgotten where there's still need and still help needed for people to go and support definitely um and that's that's a phenomenon that we see in almost every disaster you know um the media focuses on the disaster and the media's, um, I mean, they, they kind of have a short attention span. So, you know, in a few weeks, everyone will have forgotten about Nepal. And unfortunately, um, when the media